0: Of England, episode 28, The Lion of Justice. I need to start this week with an apology and a confession. First of all, sorry for the publishing the podcast on a Monday morning thing. I've been away for long weekends, and so I have been able to click the button on a Sunday morning. I'm still a bit behind, but hopefully normal service will now be resumed. The confession is that I need to reveal that many of my opinions about a large number of famous historical figures are based not on serious historical research and knowledge, but from my memory of a series of nice, simple children's books published by Ladybird back in the 70s. I'm not alone. In fact, I swear that one of my friends at college based most of his degree essays entirely on them. They're nice, big, colourful pictures that really captured the imagination. You're probably wondering why I'm telling you all of this, and the reason is that there are two figures that stick in my mind particularly strongly. One is Richard I with a picture of him in his full Crusader kit with a big pointy sword and a red cross. But the other was the star of this week's show, Henry I, who in the Kings and Queens series was called the Lion of Justice and generally seemed to fall into the good king category. Historians these days tend to be rather more critical and Henry is seen in a slightly more critical way as yet another brutal Norman and the Lion of History tag seems to have largely disappeared. But for me, Henry has always been the Lion of Justice and a good thing so we'll have to see how the next few weeks affects my ingrained and blind prejudice. So last week we left Henry galloping over the fields to Winchester, leaving his brother's body for Perkis to deal with. As I said last week, I think it's remarkably unlikely that he had a hand in Rufus's death, but there can't be any doubt that once he was gone, Henry was absolutely clear about his career options. He wanted to be king, and he wanted to be king right now. So his first objective was the royal treasure at Winchester, which he persuaded the custodian to hand over to him. He then had to gather enough support around him to get himself crowned, because quite clearly the most obvious successor would have been his older brother Robert Curtose. So he had to act fast and get key people on his side before Robert got to find out about Rufus's death. His first target was William Gifford. William Gifford was Rufus's Chancellor and he decided to support Henry. Spookily, right after Henry's coronation, Henry would give William the Bishopric of Winchester, and I have to say I doubt the two things are entirely unconnected. Just as important, he landed himself the support of two of the most powerful families in England at the time. The first was Richard Fitzgilbert, the head of the family that would become known as the Declares. It's quite possible that Richard Fitzgilbert was actually with Henry in the New Forest when the unhappy event took place. The other family was that of the Beaumonts. Robert of Beaumont, Count of Milon had been at Hastings and had been a close counsellor of both the Conqueror and of Rufus. We'll hear much more about both of these two families over the next 50 to 100 years or so. The support of these two families was enough to get Henry his promotion and on the 5th of August the Bishop of London crowned him at Westminster. After years of shuttling around between his two older brothers, at the age of 32 Henry had made it to the seat of power. Just like his older brother though, he was coming to the throne in a slightly irregular fashion and he needed to consolidate his position quickly. So he set about doing popular things. His first target was Ranulph Flambeau, Rufus's much hated justicia. He'd annoyed too many nobles, the Beaumonts and the Clares probably included. So Ranulph found himself locked away in the Tower of London, the same Tower of London, actually, whose outer wall he had rebuilt in stone. He was accused of embezzling, was probably true, and there's absolutely no doubt that there were a vast number of flambar relatives that landed themselves spookily good jobs through Ranulf's good offices. But to be honest, that was simply the way it worked back then, and it was nothing out of the ordinary. No, Ranulf was suffering from a couple of things. He was a jumped up, low born clerk, and the aristocracy wasn't used to this concept of the career administrator yet. And he was copying it for all the taxation he'd organised for Rufus. So Ranulf was the first inmate of the new prison. He no doubt felt very pleased to be so honoured. Next, Henry followed a by now familiar approach of issuing a coronation charter that promised that everything in the garden would be rosy under him and that there would be none of the problems everyone had had in the last couple of reigns. Henry first coronation charter became quite famous because it was to be the model that many subsequent kings followed. Basically, Henry responded to the things that the people had hated about his brother's reign. So he promises that the church will be free, that he won't overtax everyone and won't abuse the feudal Jews like his brother, and that he'll abide by the good laws of good King Edward. Here's a quick snippet from the Coronation Charter. Because the kingdom has been oppressed by unjust exactions, I abolish all the evil customs with which the kingdom of England was unjustly oppressed. So he's being pretty upfront, and there's a whole list of stuff that follows. Going easy on the hated forest laws, though, was not amongst them. You might remember that we said that a weak Norman king had to make concessions over the forest laws, the strong ones held on firm. So here's our first indication of what Henry's really going to be like when he gets through his first initial problems. He says in his charter, By the common consent of my barons, I have retained the forests in my own hands. You can be pretty sure that the consent of these barons was not enthusiastic. As you will also see, Henry pays as much attention to his coronation charter as did Rufus, i.e. almost none once he's got his feet properly under the table. But the tradition of a coronation charter is probably significant. It's a thread of adherence to a body of shared customs, and a recognition that in theory at least, kings were bound by them. It connects ancient Germanic custom with feudal kings, and the greater charter of liberties that will be wrung out of King John in 1215, however temporarily. OK, so Henry had got the key barons on his side, established himself as a legitimate monarch, he used Ranulph as a symbol of the way things will now get better. Next up was to get the church on his side, and by September, at Henry's invitation, Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, had returned from exile. Both of them were quite simply desperate to get on, but unfortunately they'd immediately walked into a crisis about church reform. The focus was lay investiture. That is, the new determination by the Pope and church reformers that no church leader should be given their position by a secular lord, despite the fact that this had been the custom for absolutely ages. In the church's view, lay investiture got in the way of other reforms they were trying to bring about, such as, for example, the chastity of priests and the buying of church appointments, or stopping the buying of church appointments. As we have already seen, and will continue to see, Church leaders in England were by no means sure that they agreed with the Pope, but when he was in exile, Anselm had rubbed shoulders with all the reformers. So when Henry asked Anselm to do homage to him for his lands, Anselm simply refused. He also refused to confirm the appointment of bishops that Henry had already undertaken. Now if this had been Rufus, there would have been a royal boot planted on the ecclesiastical backside and Anselm would have been back on garden leave. Henry and Anselm managed to find a way of postponing the issue, by referring it to the Pope and allowing Anselm to take up his post in the meantime. While I promise you that Henry will prove to be no less rapacious than his brother, it's a clear demonstration that he had rather more flexibility and diplomacy. And Henry wasn't finished with his charm offensive. His next step was to arrange a suitable marriage, and for this purpose he chose Edith, the daughter of Malcolm Canmore, and Edgar the Athelings' sister, Margaret. The thinking would have been, peace in his backyard, but also it was a conscious effort to legitimise himself. Through this marriage, Henry connected himself very clearly with the ancient House of Churditch and Alfred. All the Norman barons thought the whole thing was a bit of a hoot, and they weren't best pleased. The attitude of Norman good, English rubbish, was still very strong. So there was a bit of mockery about a rustic marriage between Godrich and Godgifu. Edith, meanwhile, renamed herself Matilda to make herself a bit more Norman, but the marriage, conducted in November 1100, served Henry very well, and demonstrated the sureness of his touch. So far, so good. Henry had done pretty well securing his kingdom, but the real challenge was yet to come. Robert Curtos had arrived back in Normandy in September. He was now a bit of a hero, a successful participant in the First Crusade, he now had an influential wife in Sybil of Conversano, and he had a pretty good argument as to why he should be King of England as well as Duke of Normandy. Most of the Norman lords came to his side pretty sharpish. He then appealed to the Pope against Henry's seizure of the English throne and started the process of building up a party as soon as he could. And pretty quickly he had a group of influential lords who had supported him 12 years ago against Rufus, such as the Counts of Mortain, Eustace of Boulogne and William of Warren, the Earl of Surrey. One supporter particularly important was a man called Robert of Bellem. Robert was the son of the powerful marcher lord Roger of Montgomery, the Earl of Shrewsbury. The Bellam family was also a powerful Norman marcher lord, and they'd long been used to being players in high politics. And then in February 1101, Robert Kurthos was joined by Ranulph Flambard. Since Ranulph had overseen the building of that stone wall in the Tower of London, he no doubt knew all the best possible escape routes. Tradition is that he got his guards drunk, and then used a the rope smuggled in by his friends to climb down the outside of the wall. He legged it over to Normandy, and was quickly accepted as a chief advisor by Robert. And it may well be Ranulf's hand that made Robert's second attempt to win the English throne rather more successful than his first, or or initially at least. However unpopular he was, Ranulph was a man of vision and energy. Meanwhile, both brothers gathered their armies, and Henry sent a fleet against Robert. But Ranulph helped Robert seduce this fleet over to his own side, and then, by landing at Portsmouth, he outflanked Henry, who had expected him to land near Pevensey, and was waiting with his army there. So the Norman army was now in place, and marching on London and Winchester. Henry had to hurry north, and the two armies met at Alton in Hampshire. The result was a bit of an anticlimax, in the sense that once again the meeting ended up with lots of talk, rather than in a nice big battle. Under the terms of the Treaty of Alton, Henry agreed to pay Robert an annual stipend of 3,000 marks. You may or may not be interested to know that a mark was worth about two-thirds of one pound. This is something I've only just learned, and it's rather nice to know, since marks do seem to come up all over the place, and I've never really known what the value was. So essentially that means about £2,000 a year. Both of them agreed that each should name the other as their heir, just as Rufus and Robert had done in the past, and they were to forgive each other's nobles, except where treason was clearly involved. Ranel Flambar was clearly one of the gainers from this treaty, because he therefore recovered his post as the Bishop of Durham. For the moment, though, he kept close to Robert in Normandy. But he was to be in Durham when the final showdown finally came a few years later. The story of the next few years of Henry versus Robert is very similar to the story of Rufus versus Robert, i.e. Robert was clearly the less competent and less forceful brother and steadily gave ground. And this time, there was going to be no crusade to save him from Henry. The first act came with the struggle between Henry and Robert of Belem, one of the most powerful of Curtose's supporters. Robert of Belem was a pretty formidable opponent. He was clearly not a gentle, peace-loving kind of guy and has quite a history of all of his own. He was 49 in 1101 and already had a copybook so blotted that the copy was completely illegible. One chronicler describes him as "'Grasping and cruel, an implacable persecutor to the church of God and the poor.'" unequalled in iniquity in the whole Christian era, although we might suspect that there's something of an exaggeration here. The Belém ancestral lands were in southern Normandy, on the border with Maine, but the family had then acquired land in the Welsh marches through the conquest. In 1077 they'd been part of the revolt with Curtos against William the Conqueror, but don't take this as an act of loyalty to Curtos. The Belém was strictly out for their own interests. So on William's death, they'd quickly expelled the ducal garrisons that he'd imposed as a direct challenge to Curthose, and one Curthose was not equipped to meet. He did his best and even managed to have Robert Bellem imprisoned for a stretch, but the Bellem basically robbed and plundered their way round southern Normandy. Bellem clearly didn't trust this new peace between Henry and Robert, and he secretly began to reinforce his castles in the Welsh March and in Sussex. Unfortunately for them, Henry caught word and summoned Belem to answer 45 accusations against him. Belem knew full well that responding would simply be to give himself up to his enemy, so he just ignores the summons and came to an agreement with the Welsh to work together to defy Henry. But the Belem power proved to be built on sand. Henry raised his feudal levy and he quickly took Arundel and Sussex. He then marched west to Wales and talked the Welsh princes out of the silly idea of supporting Bellem. Stripped of all help from either the Welsh or his other feudal lord, Curtos, Robert of Belem was forced to surrender. The family lost all of their English lands, and Belem fled to Normandy, to his Norman ones. But don't get the idea that he had any intention of getting friendly with Curtos, and pretty soon he was causing trouble again in Normandy. Curtos again proved unable to control his overmighty subject. A similar struggle then went on with the Earl of Surrey, William of Warren, Henry seems to have moved against William and deprived him of his earldom, forcing Kurtos to come over to England in 1103. And on the face of it, Robert retrieved the situation, since Warren was restored to his rights. However, to get the deal, Robert had to drop the £2,000 stipend from Henry. And Warren seems to have understood this warning from Henry and reassessed his loyalties. And from this date forward, we see that he is absolutely loyal to Henry and Kurtos had lost crucial support. Truth be told, the wheels were steadily coming off Robert's cart as his weakness and inability to govern became clear. So that his war with the Belém. And then he managed to lose control of Maine. And finally he fell out with the papacy over the same issue of lay investiture that was plaguing Henry. All in all, a bit of a mess, and Robert was beginning to panic. Henry looked at all this with a predatory eye and began to plan to reunite England and Normandy. He still had a lot of friends and a lot of contacts in Normandy, and also had a number of influential Norman exiles in London with him. The first stage in his plan was to detach Robert from as many of his potential allies as possible. And in principle, Robert should have had quite a number of allies around him, all eager to avoid facing a powerful and united England and Normandy. But Henry proved to be a really adept player of the medieval game of diplomacy. So in 1103, he met the Count of Flanders at Dover, the resulting deal was that Henry would pay an annual tribute in return for a thousand cavalry and he then proceeded to travel all around Normandy's neighbours excluding the Isle de France but he went to Brittany, Maine and Anjou and he made very similar deals there. And then he gave his illegitimate daughter in marriage to the Count of Perche The Count of Perche's lands lay on the edge of Normandy and he could be expected to give Curto some grief and keep him occupied. All in all it was all something of a coup the long-term interests of all these counties would have been to keep England and Normandy separate, and yet here they are helping Henry do just the opposite thing. In 1104, Henry came over to Normandy, supposedly in peace. But Curthouse was frightened, and after meeting Henry, cravenly gave in to Henry's demands to be allowed to take the homage of a major Norman lord, William Everer. So again, the balance of power shifted a little bit, and at the same time, Henry moved against other of Curtos' supporters in England, notably stripping the powerful William of Mortain of all his English lands. Henry was now ready for more direct action, so in 1105 he gathered an army and landed in the Cotentin Peninsula in southwestern Normandy, in open war. He called on his Norman contacts for their support and quickly gathered plenty of Norman nobles around him. For two months, Henry ravaged the countryside, capturing Bayeux and Caen, Curtis's response was to meet with him and try to arrange a treaty, but Henry now felt he had the upper hand and he refused to come to terms. Unfortunately for him, Henry was forced to return to England before a decisive clash could take place, and it was a year before he was to return in June 1106. In the interim, Robert and his leading supporters desperately tried to persuade Henry that peace and love were the only way forward for brothers. Robert of Bellême had by this time come round to support Curtos, realizing that he might despise him, but the prospect of Henry taking Normandy would be absolutely terminal. But Henry was implacable. So in June 1106, Henry came in force to Normandy, and this time the gloves were officially off. He brought his allies with him: the counts of Brittany and Maine. Arranged against him were Curtault and his two major supporters, William of Mortain and Robert of Bellême. All these three knew there'd be no relief for them if they lost, and incidentally, also there with Kurtos, was good old Edgar Atheling. Henry struck at Curtius's supporters first, attacking and besieging William and Mortain's castle at Tanchpray. Robert and his nobles marched to relieve the castle, and once more tried to negotiate with Henry, but again to no avail. So now the armies were facing each other, and the battle lines were drawn, and the resulting battle was to prove decisive. Incidentally, have you noticed that despite a long catalogue of wars here and conflicts there, mention of actual battles are remarkably rare? We'll see exactly the same thing in Stephen's reign. There's no shortage of conflict, good lord, but by and large it's a catalogue of sieges. The point is that war was usually something of an aristocratic game at this time. You'll have noticed that nobles are very often pardoned, albeit usually having to make some kind of payment or recompense. Warfare in the period is dominated by defence. Castles were very difficult to take, and the technology of besieging them was not advanced. The nobility really didn't like the prospect of battles. They really were far too decisive, and far too many people could get killed. So the Battle of Tamspry is a pretty rare example of a decisive battle during this period. The two armies were drawn up in a traditional formation, each in three sections or battles. For Henry, the commanders were Ranulf of Bayer, Robert Beaumont, and the now faultlessly loyal William of Warren but he also had a fourth force, a reserve of cavalry commanded by the Count of Maine, kept out of sight of Curtose's army. The three commanders on the opposing side were Curtose, Mortain and Balen. Henry dismounted most of his knights, as in fact was the normal approach for the time. He kept 700 cavalry to support the main body of the army, in addition to his hidden cavalry force. Robert, meanwhile, was more swashbuckling, and he fancied showing his brother what he'd learnt in the Holy Land, he ordered Mortain and his cavalry to attack, and they charged the infantry with couched lances, in the fashion we all associate with the medieval knight. But Henry's army failed to break before the charge, and meanwhile Henry's hidden cavalry took this opportunity just to spring the trap, and they charged Belem's battle on the flank. Bellem broke and fled immediately, apparently without striking a single blow, and the rest of Curtis's men were suddenly attacked in the flank and rear. The battle quickly became a rout, and in less than an hour it was all over. Mortain, Curtos and Edgar were all captured, along with 10,000 foot, according to Henry himself in a boastful letter to Anselm. And that, finally, was that. England and Normandy were reunited because all resistance to Henry collapsed. Normandy once again felt the firm hand of a proper Norman. All castles were required to have a garrison of Henry's men. He reclaimed all the land nobles had filched from him, and any castles built without the Duke's permission were torn down a proper son of the conqueror was back in the driving seat. The losers at Tanchbray met a variety of fates. Curtis himself was to spend the rest of his long life in prison. He spent over 20 years held in the castle at Devizes in Wiltshire. At some point he moved to Cardiff Castle where he died in 1134 in his early 80s. We don't know very much about what his life was like though there's a story of an attempted escape from Cardiff. Given that he must have been in his 70s by this stage you'd suspect it wasn't the first time he tried this. William of Mortain suffered the same fate, imprisoned for all of Henry's life and stripped of his lands. At some point he managed to escape, and he ended his life in the monastery at Bermondsey. His earldom of Cornwall was immediately suppressed. Amazingly enough, Robert of Belem actually survived. Sure, he lost some of his lands, but he was basically allowed to carry on. But the man couldn't keep quiet under Henry's rule, and has another part to play in the story, before the Bellame finally disappeared. Edgar Atheling was yet again forgiven and I think if I was Edgar I'd begin to be a little bit insulted by all this being forgiven quite so easily and begin to think that somebody ought to be taking him seriously. But he now pretty much disappears from our story, though he's alive for a while yet. But we don't know much more about what he does from here on in. We know that he was in Scotland in 11.20 and he probably died sometime around 11.25. And with his death, of course, dies that last connection to the old Anglo-Saxon monarchy. Finally, Curtis's four-year-old son, William Clito, was given to the custody of Helias of Saint-Saëns. Obviously, murdering a four-year-old was just a little bit too rich for Henry, but it was a decision that he would live to regret. So let's leave Henry there for the moment, in command of his United Kingdom. But before we go, during today's episode, it struck me that the big aristocratic families play an increasing part in the story. And the lack of surnames sometimes makes it quite difficult to keep track of them all. So as a short aside, I thought I'd do a note on the development of surnames. Hereditary surnames don't become an established thing until the 14th century. We've had an excellent example of this in today's episode. I talked about the bellem family, which is actually established in England by Roger of Montgomery at the start of the Conqueror's reign. One of his sons was the hero of today's episode, Robert, who was called Robert of Belem, rather than Robert of Montgomery. However, everyone realised that there needed to be some way of distinguishing between all these Roberts, Williams and Rogers, and even between all the Godriches, Ethelred's, and Edgifus. Though as an aside within an aside, it's also interesting that Anglo-Saxon names are seen as deeply uncool and career-limiting and are being dropped by all and sundry with all possible speed. But anyway, so it was therefore usual for most people to have a nickname or some kind of cognomen. There were a number of different types. The most common was the patronymic, or father's name, and the Norman Fitz essentially meant son of. So, for example, Alan Flad was a steward in Brittany and a witness to many charters of Henry I. He was quite literally someone called Alan, and he was the son of somebody called Flard, though why anyone would want to keep a name like Flard in the family is a mystery history hasn't yet got to the bottom of. Something about the place was the next most common cognomen. This could be the town or the area, such as Robert of Bolem, for example. Or it could be a landscape feature, such as a river or bridge or big rock or whatever. The third most common was a straightforward nickname. Very often these were a physical thing about the person concerned, but it could be something else personal. There's a lovely example in the Doomsday Book of somebody who was called Roger Deus Salvit Dominus, i.e. Roger God Save the Ladies. Now there's a name to have. The occupational cognomen was surprisingly only the fourth most common, so that could be, I don't know, Cooper, something like that, somebody who made barrels. Although surnames aren't common until the 14th century though, the aristocracy tended to develop them earlier. So let's go back to our Alan fitzflad example. His son was called William Fitzalan, who died in 1160, so you can see that he's a chap called William and he's the son of a chap called Alan. William Fitz-Allen's son was then called William, but instead of being called William FitzWilliam, he was actually called William Fitz-Allen. So by his death in 1210, Fitz-Allen has essentially become a surname for that family. Anyway, the upshot of all of that is that I'll do my best to be as clear as possible about the great families that play such a leading role in the country's politics, and at some point over the next hundred years or so, it'll get easier. Next week, we'll look at what kind of rule of Henry turned out to be, a line of justice, or maybe just another brutal Norman King. As always, thanks very much for listening, and thanks very much for the steady stream of comments and questions. I really enjoyed them, so please keep them coming either by email or by posting them on the website at historyofengland.com. And I'll see you all next week.